Hello, my name is Tom, and, my, and I'm a very grateful Al-Anon adult child. We'll talk about what that means in a second, but, uh, well, no, adult, no, I want to get to that in a second. You know, these lights, they're great, but I can't, well, I see my wife out here, and I see, <laughs> and there's Sue right next to her, and there's Joe, I see a bunch of friends here, look, look, look at all you, there's lots of people here, that's wonderful. Um, I'd like to ask you all, everybody in here that is an AA member, would you please clap? Would you please applaud right now? Thank you. All of those of you that are Al-Anon members, would you please applaud? Okay. I'm going to take it one further step. I want you to listen to this carefully. Are there anybody in here that has a relative or a friend? By the way, AA members, if you have no friends in AA, well, that's your... But listen, I want you to listen. Everybody in here that has a relative or a friend who is an alcoholic, please applaud. Okay. You heard the third tradition of Al-Anon, the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or a friend. So all you people in AA, this is your official induction day into Al-Anon. <laughs> there are all kinds of jokes about AAs, all kinds of jokes about Al-Anons. We'll leave that alone for right now. You know, the Al-Anon salute, the... Uh, AA, how do you know if an alcoholic's lying? Watch his lips. You know, things <laughs> like that. Uh, notice I didn't say AA member, I said alcoholic. Okay. By the way, that shouldn't be the Al-Anon salute. That should be the person that should be in Al-Anon, the one that hasn't gotten to Al-Anon yet. Okay. Now, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like what happened, and what we are like now. I was talking with Mel, a long-standing member of AA before this meeting, and uh, he, was, he was reminding me that it doesn't say what it was like, it's what we are like. And if you ever heard Bad Black, she used to say, we, our stories disclose what he was like, <laughs> or in my case, what my parents were like. Uh, and... Uh, but no, I'm Tom, and I'm very grateful I'm a non-adult child. But what that means is, what are my credentials for being here? I'm moving this away from me, but I don't want to break down the sound either. Um, what that means, my credentials for being here is my mom was an alcoholic, my dad was an alcoholic, my mom, good Irish Catholic gal uh, from with uh, four brothers and two sisters, bunch of which are alcoholics, or were. It's a different generation. Most of them have passed away. My dad was an only child, but we know his dad was an alcoholic. And, uh, and it goes back and goes back and goes back. Alcoholism, the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, it passes down from generation to generation. But when I was growing up, um, I, it's difficult, a little bit difficult to tell my story. And the reason it's a little difficult to tell my story 
is because in my mind I have like two stories going on. There was the official story. Uh, those of you that heard Joe here earlier, I too am from the suburbs. I'm from the Midwest. He's from Cincinnati. I'm from St. Louis. Um, I was a Boy Scout. In fact, I was also Order the Arrow. We mentioned that uh, downstairs over lunch. And uh, so the, the official story was everything was nice and clean and uh, went to parochial school. Everything was nice and, uh, and orderly. Yet on the, the, I could not acknowledge until I got into this program, 11 months after both my parents were in the ground, uh, that there was a problem with alcoholism in my family. So if I sound a little confused about my story, it's because I still got both those stories going on in my head. The official story and then what was actually going on. And yes, we've all seen the poster, denial is not a river in Egypt, and that's true. But I lived, uh, I lived in denial for years and years and years in terms of that there was some sort of dis-ease or dysfunction in my family. So what was it like? Well, what it was like in my household when I was a very small child, a child of, let's say, four, five, six, seven, the house was orderly, the family was orderly. We actually sat, we actually knelt down every Friday uh, and said the rosary. I think it was Friday nights. It may have been Saturday nights, but I think it was Friday nights. It was Friday night, knelt down, said the rosary as a family together. Um, all went to church on Sunday. In fact, my mom and dad went to daily mass uh, Monday, well, Sunday through Saturday, every, every day of the week. That was very, very orderly for a number of years. And then the disease of alcoholism seemed to have snuck in. Dad began to drink more and more. Mom began to drink more and more. I can recall around fourth grade. Um, oh, one more thing. I've got to tell you a couple things about my folks. Um, my mom was an excellent seamstress. She, when she was a little girl, they grew up during the Depression. Her mom used to uh, sell pies door to door, take a cart down the street and sell pies. Her dad worked, uh, I think, WPA. Uh, so, so they uh, had a picture, of course, of St. Franklin Roosevelt on the wall at home when he, she was a child. Uh, that got them through the Depression. And, uh, but my mom became an excellent seamstress. She had somehow or another made an inner vow that she was never going to bake in her life because that's what her mom had to do uh, for them to, to uh, survive. So she decided that she was going to be a seamstress. And she was. She was an excellent seamstress. And she sewed my sister's dresses when we were little. She sewed the curtains in the house, uh, everything, things like that. I remember around fourth grade, we used to have to wear uniforms in school. We had little blue shirts and little and dark blue navy pants. And I recall at th about that time having to staple my pockets shut because they were, were ripped. Because they were ripped. And that was ripped continuously. Well, little kids, you know, they get the pens and the pencils, you know, and they rip them out. Um, but prior to that time, I don't remember having to do any of my own sewing, so to speak. And thinking back on that, that was about the time that the neglect of alcoholism was really kicking in in the household. That uh, Not saying that mom, my mom was supposed to be doing those things, 
but those things that she used to do stopped being done. And uh, my father used to do a lot of the things too, drinking a lot. A couple stories that apply to me that I need to uh, point out. See, I think one of the great diseases, no, one of the great side effects of alcoholism in the household is neglect. Neglect seeps into the household. Things begin to break down. We stopped the daily rosary, I think, around third or fourth grade. Uh, we stopped, uh, mom stopped going to daily mass. Dad did that his whole life, interestingly enough. Uh, I don't recall dad ever being stopped from doing anything uh, because of hangovers or anything like that. Uh, but mom stopped going to daily mass around those times. Not that that was a bad thing, it's just a true thing. Life, lifestyle had changed. In uh, terms of my own childhood, my folks used to, see, this is the official story and the not official story. There's lots of good things that happened. See, I was in Cub Scouts. That's a great thing. You know, your parents get you in Cub Scouts, allow you to do that type of thing after school activities. And my dad would always drop me off at Cub Scouts. That'd be great. But after Cub Scouts, I could never know if he was going to be there to pick me up. He always said he was going to pick me up. But uh, it was always a, I guess you could say, a crapshoot as to whether or not he was going to pick me up. I can recall around eight, being eight years old, maybe eight and a half years old, standing on a corner on the, uh, waiting for my dad to pick me up. And Cub Scouts started around four and supposed to end at five. So I'm there at five. And I have a watch at the time, a little boy. It's 5.30 and 6 and 6.30 and it's 7. And then you say, well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you go get somebody to get you a ride or something like that? Well, see, there was another thing in my family. My dad was also a bit of a rageaholic. I don't know if that's connected to alcoholism, but it certainly was reality in my home. And uh, you can do your own inventories on that one. Uh, but in terms of the rage, it would come out at all of us, at mom, at any of the kids, at all of us. And one of the things is he was very strict about was that if you said you were going to, if he said he was going to pick you up somewhere, you better be there. So even though he was supposed to be there around five, I couldn't go into the house that was right there by the, right there by the, the corner to go to the restroom or anything, if he said he was going to be there at 5, even if I had to go in there at 7, I couldn't, I couldn't move from that spot. See, that was his thing. If I'm going to pick you up here, you better be right there at that spot. Because if, if you're not there, I'm going to leave you, or there'll be consequences to pay. So, nine years old. Now, to a nine-year-old boy who, I'm not the tallest person in the world. Well, guess what? At nine, I was a lot smaller. Okay? <laughs> And my dad was not a real large man. He's about my size now. But to a little tiny boy, a guy that is, was my dad's size, that's a big giant monster or friendly giant, depending upon how he's feeling. So I never moved from that spot. So it got to be 8, 8.30, 9. By the way, it's getting dark now. 9.30, 10 o'clock. Finally, the people in the house come out and say, Tommy, can uh, we do something for you? I said, no, Dad said he was going to be here. And so around 10.30, Dad drives up after standing on the corner for five and a half hours and picked me up and uh, took me home. 
I mention that story because that's neglect. And he had been, uh, well, he never said where he was, but you could smell. And that became a, uh, a smell that became adapted to as a child. But I just mentioned, that's not one time. That happened over and over and over again in different ways. You know, we're, if you all are good, at the end of the weekend, we're, end of the week, on the weekend, we're going to do what, what's and what's. Okay, so we're all good all week. Saturday morning, mom and dad are both hungover, sleeping in until noon or whatever. They had later masses, I guess, on Saturdays. If you find holes in the story, live with it. Uh, in terms of <laughs> but both sleeping in till noon. And then we never got, you said we were going to go, well, we're not going to do that. They didn't say we weren't good. They didn't, say, they didn't give us reasons. And although they could have, but they didn't give us reasons. So we felt, I felt neglected. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I didn't know what to expect. You could never know what to expect. You come home in the evening, and this, it, of course, the disease was progressive, so later on in grade school, you come home in the evening you, from school, you never know whether or not it's going to be happy at home, or it's going to be ugly at home, or it's going to be, what's going to be happening at home. So I ended up differently than a lot of, than some of my siblings. We all find different ways to survive alcoholism in the household. Some of us end up acting out. Some of us end up finding structures and be, becoming uh, perfectionists. I took the role of root of achieving or uh, trying to look for perfection. The only place I really found order in my life was school. You know, school started at 8.20. It didn't matter. It was going to start at 8.20, whether you felt good or not, whether or not you wanted to or not. It was going to start then. Mathematics started at 9.15, and so on and so forth. Lunch was always at 12 o'clock. School got out at 3. If you're not there by the bus, it's going to leave. No, it doesn't matter if they kept, you know, you had to go to the bathroom, that doesn't matter. The bus is going to leave. Okay. But there was order. There was structure. At home, there was no structure. So I found school to be my home. I did very, very... In grade school, I didn't do quite as well in school, but in high school, I just took off. Did quite well. Did quite well. Um, when I got to high school, remember I had... Well, maybe I didn't mention this, but I was in eight years of parochial school. I was told there are two types of people in the world. There are Catholics and there are publics. <laughs> the Catholics go to Catholic school and the publics are those that go to public school. And then there are the Catholics that go to public school. They're the ones going to hell. <laughs> so after eight years of that, it was real clear that I needed to go to Catholic high school. Well, another part of my story is um, Irish Catholic mothers want their sons to be priests. The first son, they want the first son, they'd like all of their sons to be priests. They don't want men to do any of that stuff. Uh, but they want, their, they want their sons to be priests. And God love her, my mother was a good Irish Catholic mother. 
And my oldest brother went into the seminary when he graduated from grade school. My second oldest brother, by the way, I'm one of six kids. My second oldest brother went into the seminary when he graduated from grade school. I went in the seminary when I graduated from grade school. So I went in the seminary, a 13-year-old boy, and as a 14-year-old boy, was thrown out of the seminary. I didn't know what seminary was about. I knew, one of my older brothers told me very, very good advice. He said, rules are, Tommy, rules are made to be broken. Well, they are if you want to get thrown out of the seminary. And I was at age uh, 14. And then, of course, I still had to go to Catholic high school. I mean, that's ingrained in me. So uh, I'm thrown out of seminary. My dad and I are uh, talking. And he says, Tommy, where do you want to go to high school? I said, well, what do you mean? I have to go to Catholic high school. He said, well, I want you to know. You can go to any high school that you can afford to go to. Well, if you listen to that carefully, that meant I was going to pay for high school or go to public school. Well, somehow or another, I, I had decided somewhere along the line, I did not want to go to hell. <laughs> so we went and looked at the Catholic high schools, and we found the cheapest one where I could go to school every day and work after school uh, at the school for uh, three hours, cleaning boards and mopping floors and whatnot. And uh, that would help pay my tuition. And then I could get a part-time... By the way, I'm 14, remember? <laughs> okay. Now that's... Um, I'll tell you one more thing why that sounds interesting or why that's neglect. It doesn't sound like neglect necessarily. It just sounds like, well, this is a good way to make people learn how to take responsibility. Uh, so I did that. And I went through Catholic high school and carried, uh, carried a job there at school and then carried a job after school and paid for my way through high school and worked every Saturday through my high school experience and worked every summer through high school. Uh, Charlotte, you're absolutely right. I didn't have time for an adolescence until we got here. <laughs> I was busy working all the time. The irony of that is that we were also members of the country club. Um, we would eat dinner at Sunset Country Club all the time. Mom and Dad would be playing golf, uh, spend mass quantities of money at the country club. In grade school, I'm flipping back just a little bit, but in grade school I can recall us going to the country club, Dad driving his Cadillac, and me not having shoes and having to get shoes out of his closet that had holes in them and put cardboard in the bottom of them so I could have shoes to go to school with. So uh, that's neglect. Neglect that comes from alcoholism. Um, alcoholism... A lot of you in here are in AA and have your own stories about them. But one of the things that alcoholism, at least from my point of view, does is it causes, at least caused my parents to not pay attention to important things. And uh, I need to tell one more piece of my childhood, lest it sound too much like I'm telling my parents' story, what they were like. But uh, by the way, I did work. I do have a great work ethic, okay? 
By the way, I did great in school. did so great in school, I was thrown out of the seminary. I uh, did great in high school because I had to do great in high school because I didn't want to have to pay my way through college. I was bound and determined I'm going to get a scholarship. Got a scholarship to college, but it wasn't enough. So I had to work 40 hours a week, full-time job while I'm going to college, first year. But there was still that thing in the back of my mind that I needed to do something with regard to God. Irish Catholic mother, I guess. So I joined a religious order. Fast forward 22 years later, a couple of years in the program, I leave the religious order. I'll go back to that in a minute. But uh, So I was a, a monk as well. For those of you that... Uh, one of the things I like about Al-Anon is when uh, you come, we introduce ourselves at meetings, we say, hi, I'm blank, I'm Tom, or hi, I'm Charlotte, or hi, I'm Joe, or hi, I'm Sue, or hi, I'm Cindy. And that's all we say. We don't say, hi, I'm Brother Tom, because by the time I got to my first Al-Anon meeting, I was so, my identity was Brother Tom. I had no identity separate from that. So Al-Anon helped me get an identity back just by forcing me to introduce myself by first name only. And so there were no other expectations around me. One other thing that happened in that neglectful household, or one other issue in that neglectful household, that I do have to address before I go on and talk about the important part of what I'm supposed to talk about, and that's my recovery. And that has to do with sexual abuse. Uh, I am not only a member of Al-Anon, I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse. And I think the only reason that I was sexually abused was because of the neglect of alcoholism. Nobody was paying attention to what's important. When I was two years old, I was abused by my oldest brother, not the one who, well, he went to seminary, but he was also thrown out after four years. Um, then by a babysitter when I was about six years old. Then by a girl down the lane when I was about eight or nine then by a teenage boy when I was about 10, then by three religious brothers at a summer camp run by the religious order uh, that I eventually joined, interestingly enough. By three religious brothers, there was a whole bunch of us that were sexually abused. By the way, it's not just priests that abuse, brothers do too. And uh, that's not to take a cheap shot at the church. I'm still a well, we'll get to that. I'm still a loyal member of the Catholic Church, plus a couple others. Uh, Al Anon has taught me I have choices. Okay. But I was sexually abused by a bunch of these folks. And then, uh, so by the time I got to, to explain my getting into joining an order by the time I'm 18 years old, and making the decision that says, well, I'm not going to be able to get, I'm not going to get married. Because later on I thought I was not going to be able to get married. But not going to get married is because by the time I was 18 years old, I had been abused by both males and females. And really, quite frankly, uh, was numb towards the whole idea of sex. I just didn't want it to be part of... I won't say that. That's not stating it correctly. But it was something that I would be able to live without. So... I remember going to a college mixer, St. Louis University, because I didn't date much in high school. I had not much, not much direction from my parents in that regard. I remember going on my first date 
This is the summer after I've been thrown out of the seminary. I'm 14 years old. My dad has to drive us, of course, to the country club. They're having a swim party. And dad's going to give me the advice that every father should tell his son uh, when they're going on their first date, when they're only 14 years old. He sits me down and says, Tom, you're going on your first date. I just want you to know one thing, that if you get a girl pregnant, you're on your own. This is my fatherly advice. That was, that was sex education in the 60s. Uh, and, well, that date didn't go well, and there was nothing, it was not going to get anywhere near what Dad had anticipated for me. Uh, and then, I mean, did, I dated off and on in high school. I did like girls. Um, but nothing ever went anywhere because I was so scared. I was so scared of, of not being good enough, of not being able to be good enough. It was like some, I've heard alcoholics talk about it, I've heard adult children, feeling out of place, feeling less than. Not, Joe talked about being the uh, uh, round peg for the square hole, things of that sort of thing, the earlier speaker, Joe. And that's the way I felt in high school. So I went to a college mixer in college, went to the room, nobody showed up. Since I think that I'm supposed to be trying to control the universe, I said, whoa, this is power. I wasn't able to get the whole thing. Well, it was canceled. Of course, I didn't find that out until later. But I pretty much decided, well, nothing's going to happen in that direction. And the Catholic high school I did go to had been trying to recruit me for the three years I was there to join the order. So I think, well, nothing else is going to happen. I may as well go there. It's got to be better than working 40 hours a week and trying to carry a full load at school and working full-time in the summer to pay for the next year. So I did. I joined the order. And it was the same order. I taught, taught me in high school and ran the, uh, the camp where I was abused as a child. Now, one more thing about neglect in terms of the abuse. One of the things that I found out that alcoholism does to children of alcoholics is it causes us not to talk, trust, or feel. We're not supposed to talk about the problem. I didn't know there was a problem. I assumed everybody was like this. We were just a little weird, you know. Um, people behind closed doors, because we were going to the country club. Everybody there's getting, all the adults are getting drunk anyway, and the kids are abandoned up by the pool. So... Uh, I mean, that's not a tough place to be abandoned, okay? Uh, it's just when you're during the winter when you got the holes in your shoes and the snow under, you know, coming up in your feet. That's a little weird. Uh, but we were taught not to talk, trust, or feel. And I recall in 1963, I was at this summer camp in St. Louis. Camp, um, well, it was Camp Chaminade. That'll give away the anonymity of the order, okay? Who cares? Um, Camp Chaminade, and the, the, I knew something was wrong. I didn't quite know what was going on, but I knew something was wrong. We were being taken out of our rooms in the middle of the night, and things were being done to us. And I'm not going into that detail. That's not for the purposes here. And so it wasn't just me. There were at least half a dozen little boys. I remember that. And I called my dad. I went to the director of the camp, and I said I wanted to go home. And he said, 
Well, you can't go home unless your dad says you can come home. I'll get your dad here. And his dad came in, came over, and he was agitated. He was not happy having to come. You know, I was gone for two weeks at camp. That was done. You know, we were handled. Uh, you had saved your money, Tommy, for this. You had paid for it. No, that's not true. He had paid for it. He had paid for it. I was still young enough then. I was 12, I guess. And he, uh, I'm crying. I said, Dad, I want to come home. I might have said, Daddy, I want to come home. And he says, why? Why do you want to come home? I say, I don't know. See, I didn't have the words for that. I didn't have the words. It was two years later that I had my sex education class about don't get girls pregnant. That was it. That's the only education I had. I just knew that I didn't like this. And he said, and he, and he my dad faces the uh, head brother there, and he says, well, can we get a refund? And the brother said, no. And Dad said, well, can you stick it out, Tommy? Be a man? He said, yeah, sure, Dad. And then for the next ten days, the abuse continued. I didn't have the words for it. But that's neglect. That's ne just another face of neglect. Neglect has a lot of different faces. And it, now, my, see, I've heard many people say, my parents, they did the best they could. And that's true. My dad, his dad went out for a pack of cigarettes when he was six years old, okay? Didn't come back. Came back when he was 21. Came home, got drunk, beat up his mom. My dad beat up his dad. Hadn't seen him since, okay? So that was the parenting my dad got in terms of his father. His mom was nuts. She managed to stay in and out of hospitals and raise him. Dad had to go to work at age 12, so I guess he saw it as no big deal for me to go to work at age 12. So Dad did the best he could. It wasn't very good. Okay, that's the second part of that line. My parents did the best they could. It wasn't very good, but they did do the best they could. I have to say that now because when I got into Al-Anon, that's why I had two sets of stories in my head. There was the official set of stories where everything was nice. Catholic, suburban family, went to high school, went to college, got a degree, doing all kinds of good things, joining an order, doing good things in the order, went to graduate school, got a degree there, doing good things as, as a teacher. That's the official story. The unofficial story was all this other gunk I've been telling you, which is not very, very nice type of stuff. But see, I was in such denial because there's something about being raised in an alcoholic household, at least for me, that imbued this sense of loyalty. See, my parents, they did the best they could. They were good people. They were good Catholics. They were good this, good that. My dad always provided for us well. All of those things are true. But all of them are also falsehoods. Because what they were were walls I kept in front of me from having to face what was the real story. Having gone through the admission of all those things. What is that book title? Non-conference approved, I'm sorry. Feel the fear, but do it anyway. Well, that's what I had to do with the program. I, the program taught me to feel the feelings, 
and keep putting one foot in front of the other. To allow myself to say, Mom and Dad, I'm pissed. And I'll love you anyway. I can only say that to them in the graves because they were dead 11 months before I walked into my first meeting. My first meeting, my little sister invited me to. She had been in the program for five years already. Some of you in this room had met Mary Francis. She's a wonderful person. But she has, I've heard her tell her story, and it just, see, the alcoholism being a progressive disease, she's my younger sister. It had gone down further from there. It had gone down further from there. And I'm not going to tell her story. But she invited me to my first meeting, and I went to my first meeting uh, the first Friday of August in 1988. And she was talking about the eighth step. Surprise, it's August, the eighth step, okay. But uh, eighth month of the year, eighth step, okay. Easy way to set your schedules up. But she also told her story. And when she told her story, her short, short period of her story, it just gripped my heart. It was like one of those little puzzles which have the little balls in them and the five holes and whatnot, the various holes in them, and you spin it and you try to get the balls in the right holes. It was like she spun the puzzle and all of a sudden it all fell into place. Everything fell into place. And I listened to her tell her story and, then, and I just, I wanted to weep. I didn't weep. In fact, I only cried uh, five times from 1963 on to that time, and I didn't weep then, but I wanted to. But the next week, when I came back to San Antonio, that was in St. Louis, where she still lives, I went to my first meeting for myself. And then I went to another meeting. And then I found out about adult children and started going to adult children meetings. And in November of that year, I cried. I cried for the first time that it was not over somebody else's death or somebody else's pain the first time since I cried in that camp. When I cried there in front of my dad, I cried for the first time, and that was for me. And that was in November of 1988. Well, my wife will tell you that now, after so many years in the program, I will cheer up watching TV shows. Is he touched by an angel, you know, and there's a dove flying out, weeping up and crying, you know. We can go see movies. So I can cry at anything. And that's a gift this program has given me. I can feel now. Another gift this program has given me is that I can trust now. I have found some wonderful, lovely people in this program. Charlotte. Charlotte's a wonderful person in the program. But to show you how frightened I was of how other people thought about me. I remember Charlotte at an adult children meeting, and I don't know if she's the one that brought the non-conference approved uh, magazine to the, uh, to the meeting, but somebody had brought a, a, a magazine to the meeting that was called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And was that you? Did you bring it? Or you made the comment. You were standing there. We were all standing there around. And uh, I asked the person that had the magazine, because they subscribed to it, they got it in the mail. I said, "Well, does that come? Uh, does that come uh, in a paper? You know, is that covered?" And uh, and Charlotte made the comment. I remember this. Yeah, it comes in a brown paper bag. Uh, <laughs> but 
course, she, she didn't know. This I was very early in the program at the time. She didn't know I was serious. It but would it worried me if the post person, if the postman or postwoman knew that my parents had been alcoholics. See, another thing that this program has taken away from me is shame. See, I could feel before the program what I could feel was anger and shame, and the rest of the time could feel okay, just kind of a dull roar. I couldn't feel up, I couldn't feel down. I was on that merry-go-round called alcoholism. Okay, now I've gotten on the roller coaster of recovery. Okay, I like the roller coaster. I love roller coasters. A little sad about roller coasters. Uh, just a brief thing about my health. I've had some pro- some problems recently with my health. Actually, what I want you to do is all visualize me as the healthiest person you've ever seen. I am a healthy person. But I've been told that I had some problems with the health in the last few months. And uh, part of it has to do with balance. And uh, I'm recovering my balance. Because I have passes to Six Flags, and I have passes to SeaWorld. And I buy those passes each year so I can use the roller coaster. That's something else I learned in Al-Anon, especially Al-Anon adult children. I learned how to play. When I got into the program, I couldn't go on the second. I couldn't go on the high board in the swimming pool. Since getting into Al-Anon, I've gone to top of tops of mountains in Yugoslavia. I ride roller coasters. It's given me back my life. I guess I have to say back my life because I do remember being having fun before age six or so. I remember a lot of fun then. And Al-Anon's given me back my life. And how has it done it? It's done it through the tools of the program. The tools of the program. First of all, I had to admit, first thing I did was I admitted my parents were alcoholics. But the second thing is I truly took the first step. I admitted that I was powerless over their alcoholism. And it had made my life unmanageable. And getting into the program kind of helped me open my eyes to see where my life was unmanageable. When I got into the program, I was drinking. I was drinking in a way that wasn't good. In fact, one of the I was I was drinking quite a bit. And I went on uh, I went on a what was billed as an adult children Al-Anon adult children Al-Anon AA retreat out in Hunt, Texas, on a weekend. There was me and 11 AA members. But they talked about, you know, there's some of this old grizzled guy. Yes, you know, all these guys are talking the talk. Why don't they walk the walk? You know. But at that weekend retreat, they had an open AA meeting on Sunday. And uh, at the beginning of the meeting, they said, does anybody have a desire to stop drinking? I said, yeah, I do. Well, I didn't say it. I went. He said, we'll give you a chip. Well, I've never wanted to pass up free prizes. Uh, and also one that uh, I knew that I was drinking too much. I had learned that in meetings after going to meetings for a while. And I'm talking about my parents' alcoholism. I have the genes and everything else. I could make a wonderful raving alcoholic. So I could come up here in another, start drinking again, and come up here in another 10 years. Uh, but no, I would not do that. Uh, and went up and got that chip. And 
I have not had a drink since then. I had a desire to stop drinking. And I got sobriety through Al-Anon. I am not a member of AA. I've read the big book, and I have not had that type of compulsion to drink. My drinking was allowing me to feel. I couldn't feel, so I felt. Got into Al-Anon, found I could feel other ways. Charlotte, you may remember this, but I took you out to lunch, uh, probably in 1988, 89, and asked you if you thought I was an alcoholic. The reason I ask that is, see, adult children meetings had AA members, just like Al-Anon meetings do today. They had AA members and Al-Anon members, and Charlotte was always quoting the big book. And she must be an AA. So I took her out to lunch, and she said, well, Tommy, I don't know. You're going to have to ask yourself. I'm a member of Al-Anon. <laughs> so, so that conversation didn't lead to one thing or another, but it did lead me. It did lead to further confirmation that I was along the right path. Okay, and so uh, working the steps, took the second step, third step, fourth step, fifth step, six. Did all twelve steps. Had a wonderful sponsor. Okay, a wonder. And all of the different things I've been telling you about the real story. That's what I discovered when I took the steps. I discovered the real story. I can stand up here with no shame and tell you that I was sexually abused. That doesn't tell you anything about me. It tells you about the people that were around me. It has nothing to do with me. I can tell you that. When I, but when I first got in the program and I discovered I had been sexually abused, I started analyzing and remembering stuff. I remember going to a bookstore and the self-help section and picking up these sexual abuse books and being, you know, being, didn't want anybody to see that I was even in that section because they might think, well, gee, so, well, I'm a teacher too, so I could kind of, oh, well, I'm getting this for my class. You know, I'm going to teach about it, stuff like that. So, but I worked through the steps and as I became less and less robo-monk, Remember, remember RoboCop? I used to think of myself as RoboMonk. You know, I was a monk. I had my exoskeleton. You can't touch me. And I am powerful. Well, as that exoskeleton began to become disassembled and dissolved, I began to find out I did have choices. I found out that I have a God that loves me unconditionally. Now remember, I'm a monk when I joined the, got in the program. This is the kid that didn't want to go to public school because he thought he was going to hell. Well, remember, maybe you don't remember because you don't know this, some of you aren't Catholic, but brothers take what are called perpetual vows. Perpetual means forever. Not, not as long as you want, but forever. <laughs> if you break those vows, guess where you go? You go to hell. Okay. So I didn't want to go to hell still. But Al-Anon helped me find out that God loved me unconditionally. And if I have a God that loves me unconditionally, I take that, and then I take this other principle I learned in Al-Anon, that I have choices, and I put those two together. Well, in the spring of 1991, I'm sitting overlooking Lake Tahoe on a golf course. Bob, you should appreciate that. There's this beautiful golf, Bob Jorgensen, beautiful golf course up there by Lake Tahoe. And I'm sitting there, I don't know what hole it was, 
but overlooking the lake. And I'm talking to God. I learned how to do that genuinely in Al-Anon. I'm talking to God, and I said, God, do you want me to continue being a brother? Or, do you want, or should, I, should I stay, or should I leave? And it came to me in my heart. God told me it was up to me. It was up to me. And I sat up, stood up, was sitting down, I stood up, and I said, well, if it's all the same to you, I'm out of here. <laughs> and so I left the religious order after 22 years of vowed life. And some other thawing had been taking place while I was in uh, Al-Anon. I began to feel. And not long after I made that decision, I met the most wonderful person I've ever met in my life. And she's sitting there in the front row, Cindy. And we're going to celebrate our 10th year, 10th anniversary this August 1st. I had made my decision to leave the order, but I hadn't left the order yet. That takes a process, okay? you got to write the Pope and all kinds of things. I'm not joking. <laughs> <laughs> I did have to write the Pope. So, but Cindy and I had met each other in program, and I had invited, because I'm still in the order, I'm still living in the uh, brother's house, I, we're not dating, This we're still kind of learning if we want, we're interested in each other, so I invite her to dinner at my house, well, my house happens to be the monastery, and <laughs> so I invited her, I said, let's go to dinner and a show, and by the way, if you want to, we can go to Mass before, because <laughs> we have Mass and dinner and she comes to the house, and she doesn't go to mass, but she chooses, but but is, eats with us. And of course, everybody—I didn't notice it. I thought all the guys just, you know, treating her nice and everything. But she says they were all giving her the evil eye, because uh, I had not, you know, evil eye. And then we went to a movie, and then things went from there. And uh, about a year and three or four months later, we were married. That was a real big, important step for me. Because before I got in program, I think I hit my bottom. This is a discontinuous story, but before I hit my, when I hit my bottom, I think it was when I was, I was a brother, and I was sitting in the back seat of two friends of my car, two friends of mine car, and we were driving down the street, and they were a very happily married couple. We were all out doing what we did in those days, we'd drink beer. And I uh, remember saying to myself, I think, I'll never be able to have anything like they have. I'll never be able to ha be happy like that. They're so married and in love. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that. Maybe I ought to kill myself. Well, I didn't kill myself, because remember my big thing. I don't want to go to hell. And that's what happens if you kill yourself. See, I'm not saying these things are true. I'm saying these are things I learned. Okay, but I don't want to go to hell. So I, I'm not going to kill myself. But then later that... Later, a year later, my sister invites me to a meeting, go to a meeting, and the rest is history. In terms of bringing it up to today, there are a couple of things I wanted to read to you or mention to you from the big book and also from our Al-Anon uh, Courage to Change. How am I on time? Doing fine? Okay. Um, I have a sponsor now, a new sponsor. I got a sponsor when I was uh, first got into the program. Program says, program suggests 
they suggest it's not a good idea to have members of the opposite sex as, sex as your sponsor. And uh, I don't know if it's alcoholism, alanonism, whatever, uh, but of course I chose to have a female sponsor at the time. Uh, and so here's this monk and this pregnant woman. Uh, <laughs> she's, she's hearing my fourth step, fifth step, and so on and so forth. But she was a wonderful sponsor. And then over the years, I had she moved out of town, and then I had another sponsor. And then I did something for a while with another member of Al-Anon. We tried to co-sponsor each other. Maybe that works for some of you, but it sure didn't work for us. We could never quite figure out who's the sponsor and who's the sponsee. And so there were still friends. We were good friends at the time, but we couldn't be sponsoring each other. So I've sought out another sponsor in the last year, and we're working through the... And he's... He's an interesting, wonderful sponsor. And I think he goes back to that type of era, pre-Alanon conference-approved literature era. And he has a big book. And his big book is interesting. In the front of the book, it's like a genealogical statement. He has his name of his sponsor, and then that person's sponsor, and that person's sponsor, and that person's sponsor. It goes all the way back. And... At the beginning of that list is Lois W. Every one of them. And what they've done is they've used not the same big book, but each of them have done this underlining thing with each of them exactly the same. So I have the benefit, for those of you that are new to Al-Anon or don't know who Lois W. is, she's the uh, uh, better, not, I don't, she's the, one of the foundresses of Al-Anon. Bill used to hang around her. Bill W. used to hang around with her. She's the one that threw the shoe <laughs> at Bill W. and said, damn your old meetings, I'm going to start my own. And here we are. And so we're going through the big book together. I don't necessarily suggest that with everybody, but it's been a wonderful process with me. And we're on the fourth step right now. And uh, we're doing it just like it's not like we're... It's wonderful that hearing Joe in the earlier meetings saying, forget the columns. Because that's what my sponsor told me. Because I was... I was on my computer and going to set up this matrix with all this, you know, <laughs> setting it all up. And, and he said, no, just write it in a narrative. Write your fears, write sex, and write your resentments. And what's been wonderful on this fourth step, and then I had to call him, I said, I said, when I get to the resentments, they're not there. They're not there. The fear and the sex stuff. The resentments are gone, you know. And he said, well, if you want to, you can put the history in, okay, but you don't have to write resentments per se. That's what this program said. I was a resentful little son of a gun when I got in this program. I had an Irish Catholic mother. They teach you how to hold grudges, okay? And I had several Irish Catholic aunts. I mean, they had degrees in grudge holding. Uh, and I held grudges. But I've let go of most of those. And so... With his new sponsor, we're going through the steps, and I'm at the fourth step, and he asked me to read a couple of things there. And he had, because of things that have been going on in my life, one of the things is he asked me to read about acceptance. And I want to read this. This is from the big book. It says, And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, or situation, some fact in my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. 
Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I could accept my alcoholism, or for me, the circumstances of my life, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. I, excuse me. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in me, but in my attitudes. I don't believe that God set me up to get sexually abused. I don't believe God put me on that street corner at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. I don't believe that God works that way. I believe God loves me unconditionally. But nothing happens in God's world by mistake. I wouldn't be standing here now if those things hadn't happened. I wouldn't be standing here now if all of the good things, no, let's say not so good things, bad things, if all of the things in my life had led me here. Now, last August, last summer, I spoke at Club 12. They have this wonderful meeting the third Sunday of every month at 11 o'clock where they have an Al-Anon speaker and an AA speaker in the big room there. And I was invited to be one of those speakers. And I gave the Reader's Digest version of my story. Some of you were there. I don't know if anything I've said today relates to what I said that day. Because my prayer today has been that I say what I need to say for me and that you hear what you need to hear. But on that, I, I spoke that day and then early August, I experienced a stroke. I experienced a stroke in the back of my head, cerebellum stroke. Gets rid of your balance. Also, the reason most of you don't run into people with cerebellar strokes is most people with them don't survive. I am here because God saw that I survived. I am here because I was able to ask for help at that time. When I got into the program, when my parents died, and I was in the order, I got my own plane tickets to get to the funeral and drove myself to the airport. I wouldn't ask anybody for help for anything. I even ask for directions when I'm driving now. So, so I had, by the way, notice, Henry, I said I experienced. I didn't have that stroke. I don't want to have that. I experience it. It's something, another experience. Okay. When you want to, that's my way of approaching things. I didn't have it. Okay. Last few months have also been kind of uh, tentative. Oh, but point of that story. I get back from the hospital and I get a phone call from Charles W. He says, Tom, would you like to speak at SANAA? I said, well, I have to get back to you. I have to talk to my sponsor. Now, my sponsor knew what I'd been through physically. And I said, you think I should speak? He said, or he said, they've asked me to speak. He said, what an honor, go! And so I came. And so I put it on the calendar. Other things have happened between then and now that have led me to think of life in this way. And you've heard the phrase, this phrase before, but I take a little bit of a different take on it. Some people see the glass as half empty. Others see it as half full. I'm just so happy to have a glass. <laughs> Thank you, God. You gave me a glass. Thank you, Al-Anon. You taught me how to fill it.
Thank you.